Good morning. How are we doing? Okay, a few less than first service. Okay, good to know. All right. Well, uh, before we get started, I just want to welcome both those who are in the room and those who are out on the interwebs. Thank you so much for joining us, whether you're here or you're there, or glad you're here, or glad that you decided to spend your morning with us. So I know I say that a lot in the announcements, but I actually really mean it. So when you guys hear me say that in the announcements, I, I genuinely mean I'm glad that you're with us. Um, before we, uh, before we get started this morning, uh, I'm going to hopefully save some of you guys a little bit of a headache. If you didn't realize this, it's Father's Day. Okay, so if you didn't send a card, you didn't do, maybe put a reminder in your phone right now. I'll understand if your phone comes out right now. You're gonna set a little reminder, maybe in two hours, call dad, something along those lines. You're welcome. Um, let's, uh, let's go ahead and celebrate the dads in the room. If you're a dad, would you please stand up? We would love to cheer for you. Stand up. There you go. Thank you, dads. All right. Thank you, thank you, uh, dads, for um, being dads. I know that that can be a hard job. Uh, let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the opportunity to be up here this morning to speak about your word, to share your word. I know your word does not return void. I know that um, you have things that you want to teach each of us personally. Um, there are things that you want to speak, and I just invite you to do that. I know that apart from you, I have very little to offer, um, but I know that through your spirit, you can speak some pretty important things into our hearts. Through your word, um, you can transform lives. And so, Lord, I just ask, would you be present this morning, both in my speaking and in our hearing? And would you help us to have soft hearts towards you, ready to listen, ready to be taught? We love you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, this morning, I... Uh, want to talk a little bit about dads since it's Father's Day. Uh, it's fitting. The Bible has a lot to say about fathers. Um, and I did this to him first service, and he made the mistake of coming back for second service. My dad is actually here. He's right there. Um, yeah, you can cheer for him. He was nice enough to come for Father's Day and listen to me preach two times in a row. So that's a really uh, supportive dad. Um, I had a really, really good example of a father in my dad. Um, my dad was the kind of dad that I was 100% confident, always, always knew that he loved me. There was, there was like, I can't think of a single time in my life in which I questioned if my dad loved me. Um, he, both him and my mom con continuously would speak that, but would also show that and would do things to demonstrate that. And not only that, but he was, he was uh, the things that you want in a dad, right? He was uh, kind, he was patient with me when I would do stupid things, um, which I did. Um, he was uh, ready to teach and ready to offer wisdom and is still teaching me things. Um, he's, we're flipping a house right now, and so he spends a lot of time coming to my house and showing me how to do things. <laughs> um, he, uh, you know, disciplined me when I needed to be disciplined, which is so important, right? He was a good dad, is a good dad. Um, 
And yet, in spite of having a really good example of a loving dad, I somehow kind of missed that picture when it came to God. And when I say I uh, did that in the past, I don't mean like, you know, a long time ago when I first became a Christian. I mean up until recently. I think I missed the picture of God's love, of God being a loving father. I would say that I got kind of stunted in my growth in the love of God. And what I mean by that is I knew, you know, head knowledge, knew that God loved me, right? And I I would imagine that most of us in this room, to some degree, have some head knowledge around God's love, right? Most of us are familiar with John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, right? We're, We're aware that love is in some way part of the motivation, right? But I think with a lot of us, it kind of stops there. And it never really transitions into this personal kind of heart knowledge understanding of the love of God. And I think we're missing out. I think we're missing out in in experiencing and knowing not just here, but in here, the love of God. I think we're missing out in that experience. I certainly was. And so this morning, what I would love to do is just get into God's word and and see a picture of God's love uh, from an interesting sort of direction. So if you'll turn with me, we're going to jump into Luke chapter 15 this morning. Luke 15. And we're going to go all the way through the chapter of, uh, of <laughs> I was going to say the chapter of Luke. My brain is a little tired. We're going to go all the way through chapter 15 because I couldn't split this story up. The, this story is so tied together. These, these three parables are so tied together. And plus, I didn't want to give the last parable to somebody else. I wanted it. So, <laughs> so we're going to go all the way through chapter 15 this morning. I hope you guys are ready to buckle up. Let's jump in and, uh, and see what's happening. And so the story starts off right off the bat with, Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him, him being Jesus, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. (laughs) Sometimes I want to, like, sarcastically reply to the Pharisees when they say things like this. Like, oh, no. You know, like... (laughs) But there is this, there's this like piece of us that gets a little like, come on, Pharisees, get it together, right? Like we have like that kind of, you know, mentality of like, of course he's eating with the sinners and the tax collectors. But there is kind of a thing in us too, right? There is kind of a thing in us too, where we can have a tendency to have groups of people that were like, okay, but mm, not them, Right, and that could be a different religious spectrum, religious, a different political spectrum, a different religious group, uh, an individual, or you know, a particular sin, you know, a group of people that participate in a certain sin. We get kind of in our heads a little bit if we're honest with ourselves. Sometimes there's those people that were kind of like, eh, well, okay, but not them, right? So I think it's helpful whenever we find ourselves jumping to kind of get after the Pharisees a little bit. Always a good time to question ourselves a little bit and say, okay, hang on. Do I do some of this? Am I maybe guilty of this in some way? So we're going to get to see Jesus tell three parables in response to the Pharisees grumbling. So these three parables are directed at the Pharisees, which I think is really cool. 
okay? And you'll see why. Because a lot of times when Jesus talks to the Pharisees, we're kind of like, ooh, Jesus, are you allowed to say that? Right? You whitewashed tombs, you hypocrites, you brood of vipers. Like, I mean, he says a lot of things that you're like, ooh, is that, is that Jesus-y? Are we good? Right? But, but this time, this time, he's going to be really gentle in his rebuke. You can, you can actually see him shepherding them in these three stories. And so, so walk along with me as we, as we look at these three stories. The first one, he says, so he told them a parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Right? So a lot of times when Jesus starts talking about sheep, first of all, I get slightly lost because I've never led sheep around or anything like that. So I have little perspective on sheep, right? Maybe you guys do, but I, <laughs> I haven't dealt with sheep a lot. But here's a couple things I know about sheep. I know sheep are incredibly dumb, okay? Uh, and I was told, and I've never seen this happen, I was told that sheep sometimes in a thunderstorm will stare up at the sky watching it and drown themselves. <laughs> So then my immediate thought is, Jesus, I'd prefer you didn't call me a sheep, right? <laughs> but, you know, sheep are, sheep are kind of dumb, right? Where a lot of other animals have this kind of pack mentality, they'll stick together, whatever. Sometimes sheep will just like, what's over there? You know, like they'll, <laughs> they'll just kind of like take off, go investigate something. I don't know what they're doing. I'm not, I'm not a sheep. I don't know. But they take off, going to look at something or whatever, and before you know it, they're like miles away, Right? And so Jesus is referring to this idea that shepherds don't just let their sheep wander off, right? Shepherds don't just let their sheep go and just be like, well, that stinks. Now I'm down to 99. Like, <laughs> right? Partially because that's their livelihood, right? That's their job is to make sure these sheep stay together. And so, of course, the, sheep, you know, the shepherd is going to say, okay, you all stay here. Bill, you're in charge, right? <laughs> Bill's the more mature sheep. Um, you know, leave all the sheep here. I'm going to go get the one that took off, right? And so he goes after the sheep that is taken off. And I love that picture. He puts the sheep on his shoulders because you know that sheep's not just going to walk with him. Right? It's like, let me, uh, okay, here we go. You know, and I, I really like that picture because I feel like that sheep a lot with Jesus, right? I feel like that sheep where he has to literally like put me on his shoulders and be like, you need some help. Let's go, <laughs> right? And so, I love the, the picture. He says that he, he rejoices in finding the sheep, put, putting it on his shoulder. And then it says, when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Which is a weird party, but lost sheep party. Um, but, you know, you, you kind of, you can get this, this picture. Uh, and he, he calls them together and says, hey, you know, let's, let's, Celebrate. I found that lost sheep. I had to go like three days journey away to find the sheep. It was over on Bilbo's farm. I don't know. I can't think of a name. <laughs> Bilbo. <laughs> Good night, everyone. Um, anyway, uh, you know, he comes back, brings the sheep. Hey, we found the sheep. This is so exciting. We found the sheep. And what I, what I love about this picture is he says, just so I tell you, there will be more uh, joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Let me reread that a little differently. Watch my hands here. Watch my hands. Okay. 
I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Okay, catch the quotes, right? I, I think Jesus is gently coming alongside the Pharisees on this and saying, okay, you guys think you're very righteous. I get it. Let's just talk about why I'm ministering to sinners, right? I don't think this is Jesus saying they don't actually need repentance, okay? I, I don't think that's what Jesus is driving at here. And so I like this picture, though, of this idea of just like heaven kind of going crazy over a, a, a lost sinner being found, right? And so this is what came to my mind, and I apologize because this is probably not theologically accurate, but this is what ran through my head when I read this. I'm, I'm imagining like all the angels like looking over the edge, right? And then I'm imagining uh, like a soccer announcer, you know, like one of those really excited soccer announcers. And he's like, all right. And the friend is telling the friend the gospel. It looks like they're considering, they're talking about it. All right. It looks like he's going down to pray. He's going down to pray and Jesus got another one. Right. (laughs) Maybe not theologically accurate, but I think that'd be cool. So, that's what I'm imagining, though. Like, it's like, and then the, the, you know, the crowd goes wild. The angels are all like, yeah, high-fiving. I don't know if angels high-five, but <laughs> there's a lot of theology you should not be learning right now. Um, but you get the point, right? You get the excitement over this idea of a lost sinner being saved, right? That is a thrilling thing in heaven, right? And, and, and I imagine that God is beaming ear to ear, being like, yeah. Jesus got another one, right? That's an exciting thing. All right, so Jesus is like, okay, let me give you another example. He says, or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Anybody ever done this kind of a thing, right? Looked for like two hours, torn the house apart, right? You get to the point where you're like checking the freezer and you're checking the cabinets. You're like, I know it's not here, but I, you know, right? You start to look like a crazy person, right? This is, I'm just describing what happened when I just lost something. Um, and so you see this kind of this, this diligent searching, like, I got to find this thing. Where did it go? This kind of almost like, you know, like kind of not quite panicking, but like, I'm going to find it. I'm going to find that lost thing, whatever my wallet or whatever it is, right? And he he continues, he says, And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost, right? Which we do this too, right? You look for something for two hours, and then you find it. I dare you not to tell anyone, (laughs) right? There's no way. Anybody within your vicinity, I found it! (laughs) You become secondarily crazy, right? Now you're like losing your mind. They're like, that's cool. You found the bottle cap. Great. (laughs) So uh, he says, just so I tell you that there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents, right? So we we understand this. We get this picture. And just to give you a little further of an analogy, I've set something up for you guys, okay? I thought this would be an exciting way to do this. It's not quite identical to the story he's talking about, but I have lost somewhere in this room under someone's chair, under a chair, there is a $100 bill. I'm not kidding. I'm dead serious. There's a $100 bill under someone's chair. So you guys can all check underneath your chairs, feel underneath there, and see if you can find a $100 bill under there. Somewhere in this room, there's a chair with a $100 bill uh, taped to it. You guys are doing a great job. 
I wasn't lying, $100 bill. I'm so glad you guys laughed. I did this first service and I was so nervous they were gonna be like, that wasn't funny. Don't talk about $100 bill and not have it there. Also, I ripped it. I, I'm concerned this bill's fake. I ripped it during first service. <laughs> so, obviously not quite the exact same thing, but maybe you got a little excitement, like maybe my chair is the $100 bill chair, right? You got that little feeling of like, ooh, I'm going to find it, right? Obviously not quite the same, but you get the idea, right? This idea of finding something that has been lost is thrilling, right? It's an exciting feeling. And clearly heaven reacts that way to sinners that are lost and found, right? So let's dive into Jesus's third parable. And I think this one we really will connect well with. This is one of those ones where like, oh, I get it. And I know that we've probably heard these stories before, maybe many times. We've heard many great preachings on them. I want to just challenge you to read this fresh. Let your heart soften, right? There's kind of that little bit of that hard heart thing that we kind of get where we're like, I know this story. I'm going to tell you, I, I know exactly what he's going to say, right? <laughs> just let that go, right? Let our hearts soften up. Just see what God has to say, right? So let's dive in. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Okay. He's talking about inheritance, right? And contextually, if you look at their culture, a son demanding uh, inheritance like this is a son essentially saying, I wish you were dead. That's, that's, that's effectively what he's saying to his dad. I, I wish you were dead. Give me what I've got coming, right? Even today, this would be really weird, right? Even today, doing this to your dad would be super like, you know, that's not okay, right? But, but even more so in their culture, right? Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me the money I'm gonna get. I'm done with you. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country and there squandered his property in reckless living. By the way, it's crazy to me that the, the father agrees to do this. He's, he's willing. He says, okay, that's what you want. I'll let you, right? And so the son gathers up all this, this money, these resources, goes off into a far land and parties hard, right? And, and there's some, you know, con context later to prostitutes and, you know, basically Drinking and the whole nine yards, right? He just parties really hard, spends all of his money, right? Probably has a lot of friends while he's got the money, you know, and then money starts to dwindle, friends start to dwindle, right? It says that, uh, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, which by the way, I think is by the grace of God. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. Okay, Jesus saying this, right? We're talking to Jews here. Pigs are unclean. This is like the worst job you can get, right? This is like the bottom of the barrel job. Like imagine whatever, if you guys have ever seen Micro's Dirty Jobs, imagine one of those kind of jobs, right? Uh, and so he hires himself out to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, 
and no one gave him anything, right? These pods are not even like really edible. They're like pig food. They're not, they're not edible for human consumption, right? They're not the kind of thing you would normally eat. He's so hungry. He's like, I'll eat that. But he can't because that's the food he's supposed to give the pigs, right? He's just barely scraping by. Okay, a lot of times in our Christian culture, what we call this is we call this coming to the end of yourself, right? We, we, call, we, call, or we might call this hitting rock bottom, okay? That's a more general phrase. You hit a point in which your sin will take you no further, right? We inevitably hit this by the grace of God. We inevitably run out by the grace of God and hit a point where we're like, I can go no further, this is meaningless. And it might be that we find ourselves in crazy situations. There's plenty of people with stories like that where they found themselves in jail or they found themselves, you know, their whole family left them or whatever. Or it might be that we kind of look fine on the outside, but inside we're bottomed out. We're done. We've got nothing left. Our sin has taken us as far as it will take us and it has left us wanting. It has left us empty and it has left us knowing something is really wrong. This isn't the way things ought to be. I'm in huge trouble. Spiritually hungry, spiritually dead. So the son has a very bold uh, idea. It says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Pretty bold. Realistically, pretty bold. Imagine doing this, telling your dad, I wish you were dead. I want nothing to do with you. You're the worst, whatever. I'm going to take my money and I'm going to go. And then coming back and essentially groveling and being like, hey, can I have a job? Right? But basically what the son is doing here is he is relying on the character of his dad. That's what, that's what he's doing. He's relying on the character of his dad. He knows his dad can't turn him away because of his character. He knows that his dad's character is to take care of the people that work for him. He knows that his dad's character is to be you know, generous and caring for people. And even though the son knows that his relationship with his dad is burned and there's no chance, I mean, it's totally, I've messed it up beyond all things. I know dad will still hire me. He might hate me and he might really not want anything to do with me and might not talk to me, but he'll hire me and he'll feed me. And man, I imagine this would be an awkward moment for the, for the son. I imagine this would be an incredibly awkward moment to realize my only answer is to go to the dad that I spurned, right? To go to the dad that I was like, forget you, I don't want anything to do with you and have to go back and, and try to find a way in as an employee, right? And so... He comes up with a phrase. He, he, we've, we've probably done this, right? You ever have a major conversation, you know, you're, gonna, you're like really stressing out about it and you like write out what you're gonna say in your head or sometimes you like literally write it out, right? That's what he's doing. He's planning, okay, this is, I'll say this, he'll say this, I'll say, you know, like he's running through, what am I gonna say to my dad when I look at him? Because this is gonna go really bad and, and I, I wanna try to, you know, say it just right and try to kind of sneak in the door a little bit, right? And so maybe if I, if I claim all the sin that I've done, I, I've sinned against you, I've sinned against every, I'm just totally a sinner, I'm so sorry. Maybe if I, if I look really, really humble and really, really just, you know, maybe, maybe then I can kind of sneak in the door and, and get, get to work for my dad. 
That's what's running through his head, right? So boldly, and I, I think this is pretty bold of him, he, he uh, heads for his dad. Says he arose and came to his father. And now here's the big plot twist, right? And, and imagine the, the Pharisees listening to Jesus telling this story. This would be a big like, what? It says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Okay, there's so many things in that one sentence, right? First of all, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Why do you think that might be? He's watching for him. He's waiting for his son to come home. He's hoping every day that his son is going to come home, right? He's watching. And as soon as he sees him, it's the day that he's been waiting for. He does an incredibly undignified thing. Men in Jewish culture did not run. That was undignified, especially older men. You did not, you just didn't do it. You, you walked dignified, right? They'd have to like hike up their stuff, right? Their skirts and stuff to run. You looked ridiculous, right? It was, it was just something you didn't do, let alone for a son that had, remember, this is a very shame-oriented culture. This, this son had totally shamed you. Taking off, you know, saying, I wish you were dead. Give me my money. I'm leaving. And yet the father does not care. Not at all. Pulls up his, you know, robes and such and goes running to the son. Okay. That's a real clue. Okay. He's not just sort of happy to see the son. He's thrilled. He's going to run to him. He can't wait long enough for the son to get to him. And he wants to be the first one to get there. So he goes running running to the sun. And when he gets to him, you can imagine the sun's like, ah, uh, right? <laughs> you know, like, it's like, he's coming at what, what's going to happen? I don't know. And he throws his arms around him and he kisses him. Can you imagine how mentally confusing that probably was for the sun at that moment? Like, wh wh what's happening? And you could tell that the sun's a little thrown off because it says, and the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven bef and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Doesn't even really get through the phrase he'd prepared. He's kind of skitting things out, right? And it says, but. So I get the impression that this, the father just cut him off. The fact that this but is there. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and bring a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Contextually, these are probably his things. His best robe, his best ring, his best shoes, right? This is incredibly symbolic. This is sort of like a readoption of this son. We're, we're, we're gonna clearly indicate he's part of the family. We're going to give the, the family ring, put that on his finger. I want everyone to know he's in my family. And so they bring, uh, he says, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For my, this, my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Man, that's a cool picture. This is now, keep in mind, who is telling this story? Jesus, right? Does Jesus know what the father is like? Yeah, 
right? Jesus is not accidentally giving us a poor picture of the Father here, right? This is Jesus explaining what the Father is like. Here's what the Father is like. That is a picture of love if ever I've seen one. That is a picture of unbelievable love. That's a powerful picture of love. I remember Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. So imagine a lot of them are like, <laughs> you know, like this, uh, that's not how it works, right? So let's see what Jesus continues with. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Now I want you to notice something. He came and drew near to the house. He doesn't go in the house. He comes near to the house. I think that's intentional. I think that's significant. I think Jesus is trying to specifically point something out here. He came near to the house, right? And he called one of the servants and asked them what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. Okay, catch the difference here. Younger son, inside the house. Older son, outside the house. There's a clear picture happening here. His father came out and entreated him. And th th that word can be translated a couple different ways. It could be translated pleaded. And I even saw one Bible, or actually a couple Bibles, translate it beg. Begged him. Okay? So the father comes out of the house, comes to the older son now. Remember, he ran, ran, into, ran into the younger son. Now he's coming out to the older son. He's also coming to him. Right? He's coming to him and he's pleading with him. It says this. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. Notice what language the older son chooses to focus on. There's nothing in there about love. There's nothing in there about excitement or joy or you know, anything about the... the younger son coming home or anything like that. He focuses on, I've been so righteous and he's been such a sinner and you're going to celebrate him? The older son's missing the point. The older son is missing the point entirely. He doesn't understand that his dad is not celebrating what the son had done celebrating that he has his son back, that he loves his son. That's what he's celebrating. And so the father replies, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. And remember, Jews have a unique position with God, right? He, they're his chosen people, right? And so they, by association, have God's inheritance, right? So he's talking to the Pharisees. You're part of this 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 master plan of, of my people, right? You have all that is mine. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and he is alive. He was lost and now he's found. 
I think the older brother is totally missing the point. And I think the older brother needs to repent too. The Pharisees were convinced of their righteousness. The Pharisees were convinced of their righteousness. They assumed that by their righteous behavior, which by the way, surrounded by a lot of things that they had created, the rules that they had created to go around God's law, they, they assumed by their righteous behavior, they were good with God. And Jesus is trying to very carefully illustrate to them in a very loving way, I think. You're missing it. Just like God kept saying in the Old Testament, I'm saying now, you're missing it. You're missing the point. Yes, I don't want you to sin. Yes, I want you to live righteously, but you're missing the whole point. You're missing the bigger picture. You're so caught up on this sin part, you're missing the love. You're missing the big point. You're missing the relationship. You're missing it, right? You see that the father coming and entreating and pleading with him to try to bring him in the house. And the brother refuses to go in. And we're kind of left hanging on this story. It doesn't get resolved, right? And, it, and I think that's because Jesus is talking to the Pharisees in that moment. Like, what will you do? Right? But I, I think that this is an, a, a cool picture for us in two ways. Okay? There's a cool picture for us on the one side that this is a very cool demonstration of the gospel. Right? This is a clear picture of the gospel. That, that, the, the prodigal son, the younger son. We always focus on the younger son, right? That is a cool picture of the gospel, man. This idea that we have completely sinned against God, right? Run far from God. Done things our own way, completely just gone off the deep end full of sin, right? Offended a holy God multiple, 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 multiple times. And he would send his son to die for us, to pay the penalty of the sin that we had committed, because he loves us so much and wants us back in the house. That is a cool picture. That's a really cool picture of the gospel and of the love of God. And I just got to say, if you've never put your trust in Jesus, if you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life, why not? I guarantee you're not going to find fulfillment in anything else in the rest of the world. You will reach the end of yourself if you haven't already. You will reach a point where you will realize your sin is not going to take you beyond a certain point and you will be deeply dissatisfied. Because ultimately your sin leads to death. Ultimately, if you don't have someone to come in and pay for your sins, you're going to. And the unfortunate truth is you're going to spend eternity in hell. That is, that is the gospel. Those who choose not to put their trust in Jesus will pay for their own sin in hell for eternity. But God so loves you. He sent his son to die to pay that penalty Take on your debt for your sin, the things that you've done wrong against him so that you could be completely washed clean, be seen as spotless as can be because he loves you. 
Because he loves you. He wants you not to perish. He wants you not to spend eternity in hell. He wants relationship with you. Amen. This is a God who tremendously loves you. So give him your life. And for those of you in the room that, like, of course I've done that. that that's important to me. I'm going to come to what I have only recently started to discover, which is a stunted growth in my understanding of the love of God. See, I read passages that talk about the love of God, and I believe them. I didn't disagree with them. I intellectually totally, you know, yep, that makes sense. But man, that did not mean I knew him. That did not mean I knew the love of God in an experiential kind of way. And here's the cool thing. If you go to Ephesians 3, Paul literally says that he prays for the church to know the love of God. To have the strength to know the love of God. He describes it as unknowable and we should know it. Feel free to work that one out later. In fact, he says that when you know the love of God, you get to experience the fullness of God. It's all in Ephesians 3. It's a prayer. And I'm so grateful it is because it feels really audacious to me to be like, hey God, can you teach me how much you love me? Right? Like imagine if I did that to my wife. Hey Kirsten, can you teach me how much you love me? She'd probably just laugh. I don't don't really know what she would do. Right? It's kind of a ridiculous idea. But in this case, we need help. We need strength through the Spirit to learn this. And it's, it's a prayer in Ephesians 3, so you can pray it. You're allowed to, and you should. And so if you find yourself in the category of, hey, I don't know if I totally get the love of God. I mean, I get it, but I don't get it. Start praying. Start praying that prayer. God, teach me your love. Teach me to know how much you love me. Because it actually says that we're supposed to be rooted and grounded in that in Ephesians 3. And so, if you find yourself in that category, here's my challenge for you. Sometime maybe today, go home, read Ephesians 3. Slowly, thoughtfully, not like, I gotta read this, he told me to, right? (laughs) Take your time with it. Wrestle, right? Because there is a very clear picture to us of what we should know about the love of God in Ephesians 3. And I think it's so cool. It's so cool. And it really changes things. As I start to grow and develop my understanding of God's love for me on more than an intellectual level, it even changes the way that I relate with God. It changes the way that my quiet times. If you feel like your quiet times are a little dry, a little boring, you might need to grow in this. Because it's a lot more fun to spend time with someone you know loves you. And so I challenge you to read Ephesians 3 and then go back and read 1 through 3 looking for God's love pictured in Ephesians 1 through 3. That's my, that's my homework for you if you feel like you fall in that category. And I'm willing to bet money that most of us probably fall in that category to a degree at least. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. What we're going to do is we're going to get to uh, worship with a song that really sort of snapshots this story, which I think is really cool. 
I just want to encourage you while we're going through this, spend some time with God doing a little work, right? If you, if you find yourself in either of those two categories, either I've never put my trust in Jesus, I really need to do that. Now's a great time. Or if you find yourself in the category of, hey, I, I don't know if I know the love of God. I don't know if this picture of God lines up with the picture of God that I have in my head. Kind of feel a little like, am I good? Are we good? I don't know. I kind of messed up. I don't have a lot of confidence maybe in that love, right? That's a clue. That's a clue that we need to do some work with God to develop that understanding. Does sin matter? Of course it does. Should we sin? No, of course not. First John literally says, I write these things to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have, ad, we have an advocate in the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, right? It's, it's, it's a little bit of a balancing act. We want to pay attention to sin. We don't want to just completely ignore, oh, it doesn't matter. Love, 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 right? We want to pay attention to that. But we also want to know the love of God, confidently know the love of God. Know where we stand with him because of what he's done, not because of what we've done. Know that he's the kind of father that comes running. That is really cool. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this picture of your love. Thank you for this picture of you. I know not all of us have great pictures of dads. I know sometimes we, gotta, we have to detangle a little bit our image of our earthly dad and you. But Lord, I know that, and you, you say it over and over in your word, that you love us. You love us in a way that you describe as you being love. You are love. Not just that you have perfect love or something like that, but you are love. which explains why you would send your son to die for us in spite of what we've done to you, how we've rebelled against you. Lord, I, I know that that love is incredibly powerful and transformative. I know that the more we know your love, the more compelled we are to, to be obedient to you. Not out of some sort of fear, but out of some sort of love some sort of thankfulness, gratefulness, joy over who you are. I know that as the spirit works, we're remodeled to be more like you and to love like you. And I know that the more that we know your love, the easier it becomes to love others. So Lord, would you teach us your love? And in this time together, whether we have never put our trust in you and need to right now, we need to surrender our life to you and say, be the Lord of my life, be in charge of my life. Or we've done that, but maybe we're a little shallow on the understanding of your love. Would you, would you meet us? Would you speak to us? Would you be clear about what you're doing? So Lord, I thank you for this time together. And I just ask, would you have your way with us?